Hey everyone, welcome to the Retic Lounge. I'm Nathan Katz, your host, as well as your co-host here, Lucas Bagnara. We are excited to bring you our interview with Visual Variant, or Duran Guerrero. Uh, he is going to go over this episode a little bit about his target training, his history with snakes and super dwarves, as well just what we can do to elevate this community that we're all in together. Yeah, it was an awesome episode. Um, as, as Nathan mentioned, he went into target training. We even talk a little bit about like things like cohabitation that he's done. Um, and it was an awesome interview that we are excited to bring you. Um, I want you guys to, to, you know, don't forget, like subscribe, comment. You can find us on YouTube, Apple podcasts, and Spotify. For those of you that have been so interactive over the last center, several weeks, um, Thank you so much for for supporting us. Um, don't forget, if you guys want to join our Patreon, please do that. Nathan needs a laptop really bad, um, and it's your your ability to get some um, you know access to um, what we do here at the Retic Lounge. We are creating a community of support for new keepers, breeders, and having experienced people come together. Um, it's been a great community so far. We have a Discord channel. We do uh, live Zooms every other week, um, and it, it's been a great time. Uh, before we get into this interview, I wanted to just shout out a couple people real quick. So all of our episodes are pre-recorded, and we did a lot of the pre-recording prior to us even launching. So this is actually one of the first episodes that we have been recording since we became live. And I wanted to give a couple people a special shout out. So number one, um, Laura from Wind Serpent. Is that right, Nathan? Yep, I hope that's Serpent right. Exotics. I hope I didn't butch that. But yeah, Laura, she did a phenomenal job with creating our little cartoon logo on our podcast entry that we have in our little graphic design. Laura, I can't thank you enough for all of the communication and help that you did with that logo. Um, another person I like to give a huge shout out to is Adler Romero, uh, AE Foundry. He has been doing a lot of the graphic designs and things like that. Um, and he is actually working with other people in the industry like uh, MJ from Trap Talk and Brian Cusco has had it, uh, had him edit some videos. Um, Adam uh, as well has been having him edit some videos. So if you guys are getting onto the social media platform and video editing, those kind of things, and you want a logo, rebranding, graphic design, all that kind of stuff. He is a wizard when it comes to that. And then last but not least, I do want to shout out Brian Cusco. He made a great intro music to our podcast that we ended up did not going with because we wanted a little bit more of a lounge feeling. But Brian Cusco, I thank you so much for doing that for us, being our very first interview guest. Um, and, and yeah, so for you three that, that I'm giving a shout out to, we can't thank you enough. You guys have helped shape what the Retic Lounge has become and will become. So thank you so much. And uh, last but very not least, don't forget to support US ARC. Um, extremely important that we continue to have them fight for our rights. And, um, you know, just because we won this recent battle, I guarantee you there's going to be other legislation when you know parties change office those kind of things that continue to pop up um you know since 2012 this stuff has been you know our rights for retail keepers and large constrictor keepers have been threatened every four to five years so don't forget don't get complacent continue to support them and uh yeah we're we're excited for you to join us on this 
extremely awesome interview it's a long one but i promise the content is is great here um hope you guys enjoy and uh we'll, we'll see you at our patreon you guys have a good one Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, visual variants, and let's get into who Duran is, what animals you keep, and how you got into okay. Um Well, I grew up in New York, and I've always had a love for animals. Uh, most like like everyone, I would, I would go by my high school and go in there. They had a big lot and go herping and catch garter snakes and DK snakes, and I'd take them home. I had them in a 20-gallon tank with dirt, and I'd feed them earthworms and stuff, and then uh, one day somebody came around with with a boa and a Burmese python, they were walking around. I was like, oh my goodness, those are the coolest things ever. I went to my mom and she was like, hell no, you cannot have those. <laughs> so I was like, all right. So I ended up getting like fish and kept my garter snakes. Those were my little thing, cichlids. And then uh, as soon as I went away to college, I ended up getting my first boa and I named her Desire because I wanted her so bad. And uh, I had to sneak her into my dorms and I had her in like a little 20 gallon at the time. And, uh, oh, did we lose Nathan? Yeah, we might lose him off and on for the first bit. This happened with uh, Brian, too. Um, <laughs> so, anyway, I had one in college, and then, uh, in the year 2000, I went to college. Actually, you know what's also funny? Like, I'm probably one of the oldest people in our little, I guess, our little friend group that we have. <laughs> so, I actually, I'm... 47. So I had snake way back in college. When I was like 18. And this was like way back in the day in the 90s where everyone fed live and had heat rocks in their tanks and stuff. And uh, so I had my snakes back then. Then uh, in 2000, I ended up moving to LA and I was like, okay, I can't take these with me because I had, I had boa, I had ferrets, I had chihuahua, I had all these animals. And I ended up giving them to like my uncle's cousin. Like my, he's like uncle in law, his cousin. I gave them to them, moved to LA. And then I was going out, so I was like, I didn't have time for animals. Uh, and marrying someone who hated animals, she said, anything with teeth is like a no. She said, you might be able to have a turtle. And I was like, I'm really not into turtles. <laughs> so uh, long story short, we got divorced. Um, and that, I think a couple months after we got divorced, I went to Pomona and got my boatus down there and named her Serenity for the serenity she was giving me during that time. And uh, after that, I found out about super dwarves, and I was like, oh my goodness, that's what I've always wanted. I wanted those big snakes, small, and, you know, so I could keep them. Well, there's no way I can keep an 18-foot snake. So pretty much how everyone feels about Retic, you know, who's in super, super dwarves. Um, so I found Garrett, ended up getting a couple from him. I went out to Garrett, Garrett, Garrett Hartel. <laughs> Hartle. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, oh, that, that oh, guy. That guy. Yeah. Um, uh, became friends with Daniel. Went out and visited him at his shop. Uh, went to his little pygmy line, uh, super dwarves, and then picked up one more like high genetic girl from Garrett. So that's my small collection and uh, just a, a BCI or BI, whatever they call them now. Boa. That's pretty much small collection. Yeah. I, I love that you stayed small. 
Um, and that, that, that's one thing that I personally admire about you more than I admire about myself. That's for sure. Was your, uh, stick to when it came to just like, no, nah, I'm going to really, really, really be super selective and I'm going to wait and wait and wait because I think since I've known you, which has now been for been two, years two, or so, yeah. t- two years, two and a half years or so. Um, I, I think I, I think you've only, I think you've only bought maybe two animals since I've known you. Possibly. Yeah. Um, like originally, like uh, I hadn't kept retics, so I was like, hey, let me start with a couple, see how it is, if how different they are, because I was used to boas. I keep hearing all this stuff, you know, their feeding response and all this, you know, stuff. I'm like, okay, let me just start off with a couple, see how it goes. Got those, and I was like, oh, they're pretty hardy, and don't seem to be too hard to take care of. And then started thinking down the line, if it's something like I want to do as a supplemental income, I love these things. Um, so let me get a couple more and try to think project-wise. Like, Because I know me and Lucas have always had this conversation. He's like, I just want manageable. For me, I don't know if it ever happened in my lifetime, but I want to make the smallest damn retic possible. It, it, like I told him, my dream, if I could ever get that snow and actually give it to somebody as like a six to eight foot animal, <laughs> that would be my dream. <laughs> Hundred percent. There's a need for small retics. That's for sure. Yeah, it's gonna be between so, the space. Like we live in a small one bedroom, well, it's really one bedroom and a den apartment. So there's not a lot of room, and I really wanted to give these guys room, especially after hearing like they're very active. You know, so I was like, okay, let me try to give them the space they need before I start piling on and getting everything. So between the space that I had available, and yeah. you know, they're not cheap, so. I was like, let me just see if there's something I want to do down the line. And, uh, yeah, so that's how I ended up staying small and was able to stick with it. <laughs> you know. No, absolutely. So I know you've been, you've kept your collection small, um, which is awesome. And I know that we've talked about this before, but like, what are your? I know that your your goals are to make a micro retic as small as they they can be. What are your goals in terms of like what projects you want to work with and what what is it that you're really selectively waiting for well right now to start off you know and talking to Garrett, i wanted something that's sustainable so the snow project has always been around and the value seemed to never drop and people love their albinos so initially i was like okay let me start this project i was like let me get one dwarf and one high-end super dwarf so i can have two different levels of animals so if someone can't afford the higher end high percentage animals i can give them the smaller, you know, so it won't be smaller snake, but there's a lower percentage anyway. So yep. you have two different tiers of pricing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, then I got the pygmies to, you have to outcross to keep shrinking them down. And then uh, I got a, well, since you usually have to buy the localities in pairs, I ended up getting a male and, and that was totally not mm-hmm. in my plan. So I didn't plan to get a male so early. So that ended up, I ended up getting a, Platinum Motley Tiger Poss Het Snow White Girl to pair to him so I get a variety of babies and try to shrink that down even more because she's already 68.75% super dwarf. Uh, put them to him and you get a variety of babies and hopefully some smaller animals. Yeah. Hey, if, if you're ever not using him, feel free to yeah. send him my way. For well, he's season. hitting 18 months right now. So <laughs> he's so teeny, though. I, I'm like, anybody would crush him. And I, and I try to feed him. He just doesn't grow. He's like the littlest thing in the world. Now, that, that it, it's a 
amazing bloodline what daniel's got there with his pygmy stuff um they really do stay um really small uh speaking of your pygmies um i wanted to um for those of you that are just listening i'm the only one asking questions nathan has been on and off all night with connection issues but he is back Hi, Nathan. Hopefully for sure. a little bit longer than a couple minutes. It's uh, that, yeah, uh, it's that background. It's confusing the internet. I, <laughs> <laughs> must be, man. Or this ten-year-old uh, plus computer that I'm uh, working on. So definitely time for an upgrade. <laughs> yeah. So on that note, if any of you are wanting to get backstage access to the retake lounge, join our Patreon so that you can support Nathan. Getting a new laptop. Um, so, Nathan, we were about to start talking about his pygmies a little bit more in detail. Um, I'm trying to persuade him into sending me the mail my way when he's got a little more size. But do you want to ask him anything about his pygmies? Uh, I, I, I really just want to know more about all the experiences you've had uh, cohabbing them, really, more than anything. I mean, I have a Daniel Solis animal that is... Are not even arguably she is hands down my sp- smallest female so i'd love to hear about their size how they interact with each other just any anything that's come up while keeping them in the same enclosure um actually i just separated them maybe like two months ago as he started hitting into oh, really? sexual maturity i was like let me separate them just in case even though i talked to like richard bilbo garrett and stuff they said as long as the females aren't giving off their pheromones, I shouldn't have an issue. So I was like, let me just play it safe rather than sorry in case, you know, he starts getting a little crazy or something. But I literally just separated them. Yeah. But as far as, like, they pretty much were together since I brought them home almost. And uh, again, I was telling Gina Ruck, who's also a good friend of ours, uh, I was telling her, like, yeah. the cutest thing about cohabiting. I said, I've only had maybe two issues with them, and that's because also, it helps to separate them because you don't have to sit there and watch them while they eat. Because I would use this is another thing we'll probably get to, but I target train, so I'm able to move my one of you know one of the girls. She loves following the target, so I could get her in a six foot enclosure, move her all the way over to the other side with the target, feed her, then feed him, and they're eating on two separate sides of the enclosure. And then sometimes he ate a little slower, so I had to like make sure he finished it before you know. Because as soon as she finished, she's like, okay, let me go look for food. And one time I turned my head and I heard something and I saw like she gra- grabbed the other end of the rat and he had one and they kind of like wrapped up. I had to like go in there and untangle them. And uh, there's like one other instance that happened, but you know, other than that, they've been fine, you know, for the first almost two years of their lives living together. You know, there's maybe like 60% of the time I'd find them together in certain hides or Oh, and those are some of my favorite pictures you've ever posted. I mean, yeah, yeah, seeing them curled up in the hide, yeah, just mm-hmm. peeking out—it's it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I've 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 talked to uh, Wolfgang, who is is, I mean, any of the like old school people that I've ever talked to. There's something about Wolfgang, and anybody who knows Wolfgang will say the same thing that he just has a way with just creating this bond with his retics but talking to him in detail he has um, talked about the social nature of retics he's been to indonesia tons of times he has spent so much time over there and he has talked about almost every time that he's out there and he sees them he usually it's very very rarely that he'll see one alone even even big animals 
Um, and he really talked about their social nature and how, um, you know, how they, even in the wild, will will pack up and stay together. Yeah, I can imagine even in uh, the cave systems that Daniel was talking about when he went to the islands, you know, how much space can they get away from each other? You know what I mean? Yeah. So before we actually, if we, you know, before we jump topics or anything, I want to, what, what would you, if you were to give advice to our listeners, um, on like cohabbing, because when we think of like cohabbing retics, like right off the bat, this is everyone who's like, who, who doesn't know the circumstances is going to be like red flag, red flag. Why are we cohabbing? This is stupid, blah, blah, blah. They're just going to start eating us alive here. So what, what are your opinions? And then, you know, Nathan and I, we can also drop our opinions on cohabbing and stuff like that. But what are your, your thoughts on just cohabbing in general? And like, if you are going to do it, what are some things that you think are necessary? Uh, I think it's know your animals is one, you know, uh, mm-hmm. they, you know, uh, they're pretty docile. The, the pygmy line, like from the day I brought them home, they were the nicest snakes, <laughs> you know, so definitely know your animals and what kind of temperaments they have. And, uh, I mean, uh, keep an eye on them the first, you know, until you get comfortable with them being in there alone. Cause I know some nights I was like, get up, let me go check on them. Make sure when they first started cohabbing, you know, oh, let me check on them. You know, so I was checking on them often. And eventually you realize, oh, they understand that who they are. And a lot of times I've learned that uh, the speed of their movement makes a big difference. And snakes don't run unless they're like scared of something. And their slow movements, you know, it stopped them from like, oh, is that food? You know? Uh, they crawled around each other like and you can see the difference like if i were to touch them you know how they like kind of go like that if they go over each other you know they mm-hmm. you know they know okay the only time they would do it is they unexpectedly bump snoops they'd be like oh ooh, you know other than that um yeah they they they've been fine i'm sure if uh nathan bumped my <laughs> snoot i would probably do the same reaction yeah um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think, um, one of the things that I, like, I actually want to, I, I want to try this as well. Um, and I want to get set up a bioactive enclosure, um, for like a, a pair of holdbacks from a specific clutch or two females that I have. Um, I, at least if I was going to cohab and like what I would throw out for like advice on cohabbing is like, you know, if you've had a retic at your house for three years and then you decide to go buy another two year old retic don't cohab them. That's like not a time and a place to go cohab. You just don't stick random snakes together. The snakes that Duran cohabbed were siblings from the same clutch that were separated for a very, very little time that he brought back in together. They were the same age, same size and development and got to grow together. And then I think Duran, you even played it safe. You're like, oh, the male's 18 months old. He could be getting into sexual development, even though he's still small. Let me go ahead and, and just separate him just to play it safe. But, um, yeah, definitely start as young as possible. And um, if I do it, it's definitely going to be clutch related, sibling related, because they're already hatching in the same box. They're soaking in that same water bin. They're on paper towels together, um, at least the way that, you know, I, I do things. Um, and so they they've already have each other's. And, and when babies hatch in the wild, they stay packed up together for a good long time. So um, I definitely think it's doable. And like I mentioned, I really do think that these snakes are very social animals. Um so I don't ditch a lot of people are black and white. They're like cohabbing is okay. Or it's either terrible, but I think that there's scenarios that it's, it, it's definitely doable. And it's actually probably, I'm sure in your experience was really awesome. Actually, here you said it, it reminded me of some other things. Um, they were two, like maybe foot long hatchlings. And I had them in a six foot 
my two foot by two foot together. Two separate yeah, heating really areas, uh, like 15 hides, so they can always get away from each other. And, you know, and, and a lot of times they pick the same hide or like I have two hides in the same area and they both will go to the same area, you know, like, but they had enough spaces where they can get away from each other if they wanted to. So you don't think it's okay to cohab two babies for a year in a six quart tub? <laughs> no, put them all in there. Do the whole clutch. <laughs> no, that that's a really good point. I think the size of the enclosure is extremely important. They need their own room to feel like they can get away from one another. Yeah, I mean, you don't want them competing over the same small area, uh, especially when it comes feeding time, because really, in my mind, cohabbing, the biggest issues that arise, and you brought that up, is just, you know, when that feeding response is heightened, uh, or, you know, one of the snakes is a little nervous. That comes down to knowing your animals, but yeah. And you, yeah. And you have to keep an eye on them because extremely important. When they wrap up, you know, they get the smell of the prey on their body. And if the other one comes over and smells that, you know, they can totally react. So you definitely, I mean, I'd put more time into my, you know, if you have a huge collection, it'd be hard to do to pay attention to them for that long yeah. after feeding just to make sure nothing happens. But yeah, you do have to pay attention. 100%. Um, okay. I think what I, I'm really excited to jump into is, uh, discussing target training. And before we go even into that, I, I, I have seen Duran demonstrate this over video a bunch of times. Um, and I was a, a skeptic at first about it, but seeing, um, you know, we, we oftentimes think of retics as like these super intelligent constrictors, right? Out of like all the constrictors, they're probably known to be the most intelligent and and oftentimes what's funny is i think as keepers historically we don't keep them as intelligent as they are um i've mentioned this in previous podcast episodes um but i think it's a really awesome concept and there's there's i want to know first what your thoughts are like there's a lot of old school people that i see on like the threads that you're posting and all this stuff that are very very like negative towards it and they're like never 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 again this black and white you know all or nothing type of thinking um what 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 are your thoughts about that uh, for one i respect their opinion because they've been doing it a lot longer than i have so for one that makes me you know maintain a cautious attitude towards doing what i'm doing you know because they say you know they can be a rocket they'll come right at you and i'm like okay you know and if that happens to me i'll be the first one to tell you that's what happened you know, but until then, I'm going to keep trying and see if it works because I have a curious mind. I like to know how things work, why things are the way they are, and, you know, if we could change anything and make it better. Everyone kept telling me, oh, retics, worry about their feeding response. Worry about their feeding response. You have to tap them every time you go into the thing. Tap them every time. They send me a video of the woman going into the thing, and a retic jumps out and gets her, you know. And it's like, okay, I don't want to live like that. Let me see if there's another way. So <laughs> I kind of came upon Lori Torini. Um you know, messaged her a couple of times. She kind of explained to me, you know, how it works and what to do. And uh, so I started off with hatchlings. You know, you first is what you do. You take the target, you know, bring the prey with the target, put them both there, let them take the prey, do that a few times. And also feed more often. Like I went smaller prey, so I wouldn't have to wait a long time between sessions early. So you can do it often, like every couple of days. And then eventually they associate the with the target then you start using just the target they'll come up to that 
And initially, they'll, you know, sometimes they actually still do it. They'll strike the target because they, like, get excited. It has no smell of prey on it, and they just associate it with food, so they'll strike the target. And what you want to do is not reward them when they strike the target because they'll think, okay, if I hit the target, I get food. So you want to let them reset, let them come up, smell the target, and then move it and feed them. And you want to feed them within three seconds of them performing whatever behavior you want them to perform. So if you want them just to acknowledge the target, as soon as they do that, feed them. You know, if Lori has all types of cues for like moving them and all this other kind of stuff. I was just using mine as a target, you know, cue to let them know food is, you know, food time, don't eat. So, yeah, I mean, eventually you can get them to move with the target, but it's all about how much time you're going to put in. And I'm like, I really don't want to have to, you know, use it to move my snakes. I really just want them to know it's food time. So that, that's where I was at with target training. And would you like to see Now, that? and yeah. Go ahead, Nathan. I'll show it to you. Go ahead. Go ahead. I ask uh, you a question. So, n no, you're good. So, uh, I mean, I had the opportunity while while I was out there in Long Beach to uh, come and see the target training, but just with my schedule being a working trip, wasn't able to really make it happen. Um, you know, what differences would you say the target training has made between the start and now? Like, have you been able to see a drastic change? I mean, I've seen your videos, so I know firsthand, but I want everyone else to know. Uh, no, they picked it up pretty fast. Like, I'd say within the first two months, they kind of picked it up. Um, my boa, um, when I first got her, I didn't even know about target training, so I never target trained her. So she was almost two years old by the time I started trying to target train her, and she, she actually does strike the target, but she gets a little excited, and she doesn't quite know the difference. So her, I wouldn't trust the way I trust the retics as far as them understanding me, the difference between me and Brit. And... Uh, so yeah, after like two months, they kind of picked it up. It wasn't much of a difference. Okay, so so as far as handling goes, separating you from prey, that difference was almost immediate and has lasted throughout your keeping of these animals. So far, for two years, yeah, a little over two years, yeah. And just to clarify, so <clears throat> the purpose of you target training is to mitigate the intense food response so that you, you every time you open the enclosure you're not welcomed by a snake like in your face ready to eat now according to that now Lori's experience may be different but what i've found is actually they still can get like that but i actually i think what has become my cap training is actually my scent almost that my scent has become the cue for them like oh that's not food and if I move too fast, if I open it fast, run right in, you know, that food response is going to be like, okay, I'm not going to miss this meal. Let me try it anyway. But as long as I move deliberately and let them know, you know, I put my hand there and be like, here, smell me, they'll totally back off. Well, and I think that that has a lot to say about how we interact with our animals just on our own. I mean, I... Uh, the difference between a confident keeper going in and handling their animals and a, a keeper that's scared of their animals. I, I mean, it's night and day. You'll, you'll have a nervous animal if you're nervous going into it. I think for me, uh, I've always been personally just a little like, I, I don't like getting bit. So, you know, I do everything to mitigate that. And I, I think my the biggest thing I've learned over my years of keeping is just being confident. 
So I have a question. I, even though the even though oh yeah, I was just no. gonna say even though I think the target training goes a super long way, I think that confidence level even being established through the target training can go a long way for newer keepers. I have a question for you guys. You guys have a little bit larger collection than me. How often do you interact with each individual stamp? That's something I know with the target training might be a little harder for larger collections because I actually interact with them pretty much on a daily basis, each one. Remind me how many animals you have, Duran. I have six. Six? So uh, we're, we're the exact same. I have six animals. Okay. Uh, I interact with them pretty much every single day. Okay. Yeah. Um, it just depends. I mean, if I'm super busy, uh, there there might be a day or two where I go without hands-on interaction, but I'm always checking in on them. You know, if there's a cage dirty, I'm cleaning it. I'm staring at a cage off here that she just peed in. And I know as soon as I have to get off this podcast, I have to get her out. So, you know, it's every day for me, but I, I'm just as curious with you, uh, with Lucas, because I mean, his collection's grown immensely. Yeah. Yeah. So I have, um, I have 20 snakes right now in my snake garage in the lab. And, um, out of those 20, 17 belong to me. I have three here on breeding loan. Um, and so I'm in my garage for at least an hour every day. Um, even if I don't have anything to do, um, I, I make it a point to be in there for an hour. And if I don't have anything to clean, I'm checking everything. And if I don't have anything to clean, I'm, I am working with my animals that are not as confident. Um, like right now, every day I'm handling my Halma Harris and it's been paying off over the last month. Um, so, um, I also clean each animal probably a minimum of two times a week and water changes two to three times a week. And so my, my animals are getting a good amount of hands on. It's definitely not what it used to be when I had five, six animals where after I cleaned each one, I could spend another 20, 30 minutes holding and handling them. And that's what I really miss actually a lot about having the smaller collection, but I more since I moved to my garage and I have so much freedom in there, um, I've, I've made it an effort that when I am, um, I'll select like five snakes for that week to work with more than just the putting in the bin and, um, and getting that chance to interact with them. And one thing that I've been doing for the last like year now is choice based handling. Um, so even on like cleaning days where they have a mess and even if they don't want to come out, I still will remove them. But if I don't have to clean a mess and I want to interact with them, I'll open up that enclosure. I'll tap them, break that feed response. And now that I have my garage, it's really awesome. I'll, I'll sit back like six, seven feet past the place and I'll literally just sit down and I'll just watch them. And sometimes I have literally timed it. I've sometimes just sat in front of my enclosures for 30 minutes because all they want to do is stick their head out. Mm -hmm. um, and if they decide to go back in and then just lay down, I just close the enclosure up. And uh, so I've really been giving them the choice of whether they come out and um, I can talk forever about this, but some I've noticed some localities like to interact with me a lot more than others. Uh, age is definitely a big, age and size is a big factor with that. But um, yeah, so I'm cleaning do two days a week, water replacement uh, three times a week roughly, and then um, 
and and I will make an effort with the more skittish animals to work with them outside of cleaning and feeding. Yeah, that definitely helps to ask because uh, with target training, if you're just going in showing them target feed, clothes, and don't see them for a week, it's pretty much useless because you have to interact with them so they know you know the differences between the opening you know and target and yeah, it helps that yeah, interaction you, with them. Yeah. Yeah, if you're only using it for feeding what are you really teaching the animal you know mm-hmm. the enclosure opens you, you show a target you know they're going to just associate that up that enclosure opening and food's going to yep. be there so yeah it definitely takes a yeah. lot more work than just you know throwing a target and some food in front of its face it takes mm-hmm. the extra time caring for the animals and i think what lucas said about just sitting there with the enclosure open goes back to what I was talking about with the confidence level and just approaching your animals. I mean, uh, back when I was dealing with my own insecurities with approaching some of the animals and their activity level, I would just open a cage and just sit there and see how they would come out. And a lot of the times it's, it's slow. It's methodical. They're really thinking about what's happening. And it, that just showed me like it's, my energy coming into that enclosure and coming to that animal that's really heightening the experience for the animal and ultimately you know either throwing that animal to a nervous state because i'm nervous or the opposite so yeah that that was the same with me you know my first couple years and then getting into wild caught animals um yeah my garage has definitely made me more comfortable because i have all the space in the world um, it, it's been nice, but, um, I'm sure our listeners after Duran saying, you guys want to <laughs> see are like, all right, shut up, go ahead and let him do some target training. So, um, yeah, Duran, uh, if you have the means to be able to show us, I think that would be yeah, awesome. And actually, I, I also wanted to test the limits of it. So while they're this size where I'm not afraid to get bit, like I've even <laughs> after target training, having them swallow the food, I'll put my hand next to them and see, like, I think maybe. 10 to 20% of the time I had them go at me. But even then, like, they have been able to, like, curb their food response and actually, okay, that's not food. But there are moments where they're like, okay, I'm still hungry. But, uh, yeah, let me show you these guys. He did this on one of Brian Cusco's Patreon Zoom calls. And after that, I was like, just seeing him, it's one thing to watch a video posted on Instagram, but it's another thing to watch it just live. Okay, this is Daisy. And uh, let's see. Hey, I'm open. Sweetie, come on. Come on. There she goes. She's noticing me. Yeah, and I just want to say right off the bat, I have maybe like two retakes out of 20 right now where if I open their enclosure, they literally are just going to sit like that. She's still not. Come on, not in. Up in there, here goes Olive, and she's uh, been moving around, getting a little hungry. Now, she's a more skittish animal, so, and I actually think, come here. So if I touch her, she'll like back off, but even if I, when she smells me, she'll be like, nope. Come here. They do that little slow yeah. neck curl where they just go back. Yeah. They're on the cameras facing oh, that. I got it. There we go. Sorry. You got it. 
Yeah, so. <laughs> Look at her all curved. Mm-hmm. Now, my two littles, they're in, oh, she's, a, uh, they're, they're both looking out, but they're both about to go into the shed. Uh, so she's, uh, she'll, she'll get excited. See, excited. Food, food, food. Yeah. Right, come here. Smell me. Smell me. Smell me. So that, for those of you watching, that is a very clear feed response type of oh, thing. Yeah, Reacting absolutely. to the door sliding. And he has his hand right up to her nose. So for those of you just you listening, he had a smaller like everything. Yep. Yeah. So he had a smaller snake that he opened the enclosure and it had a typical like that quick neck twitch looked right away, kind of that typical feed response, and he just put his hand right in front of that animal. And if you've owned Retix for, you know, even six months, you know that that snake is wanting food. And did not bite him. Now he's in blue, so he might not. You know, I may get bit on this, <laughs> but because he can't smell. I mean, he can't <laughs> see me. But yeah, yeah, he might just sense the heat. So, yeah, but the thing uh, is, um, yeah, I, mean, I feed, I feed everything at room temperature. I don't heat them up. So the difference is, my hand is warm, but the prey that they usually get isn't. So it causes them to think more rather than use the heat that is reactionary. So they always, almost always, they, they'll they check first. Like I said, the only thing that really gets them going, if I move too fast, and yeah. they, uh, but uh, I actually defrosted some, uh, I defrosted some things. I'll, uh, so, I'll get my fiance to hold the camera and I can actually, you can see the difference between that interaction and then when I get the target out. So. Awesome. So, so you said that it doesn't work well with your, uh, boa because she was much older so can you show us you getting <laughs> actually i just got the other day i was in there cleaning and she was way over this is where i remind lucas that we promote us arc on all yeah. of our episodes and, and don't do any of that yeah so she was way you know she's always sticking her head right there and i was down here just cleaning mm-hmm. the glass over here and she like shot out and like bit me on my knee Bows are quick, dude. The funny thing is, like, I used to be like, they're not as quick as retic in their initial reaction. Like, I can go in with her and put my hand and rub her head real quick. Where, like, a retic, if you were to do that, they get on you real fast. Like, they say almost like they're sleeping longer. So mm-hmm. I don't know. But uh, let me go. Yeah. Grab. All right. So. I'm going to try to give a play-by-play here for those that are just listening to this. But he said he's going to grab the target. Duran, did you say you had yeah, food? Yeah, I defrosted some rats. So so not only that, he has food in the room, and he was able to do that. If I had food in my room out there, like if you go in my garage right now with the bunnies thawing out, um, every single snake is pacing right, back and forth, good. just ready for me to open that door. So showing her the target, she's reacting to the target, following it. I'll give it the food. Okay. Yeah, that's sweet. So what he just, yeah, he just had the target in front of the snake and and moved it away from the snake and the snake followed the target. He then replaced the target with a food item and it struck it right away. Whereas before it was just sniffing his hand in a weird derpy way. Target time. Here she comes. And she's already smelling the target. She knows it's coming. Yep. Go get it. Yep. And and that yeah, that was one who didn't even respond to your hand there. You have to stick like your whole arm yep. in the enclosure. 
Those are good. Whoop. Here's the little ones. Here's Callie. Oh, look, see? Excited. She, she almost. Uh huh. Go ahead. Uh, do you. Uh, with your talking with Lori, has target color affected Man, anything? Awesome. Um, I started off with red, and then in hearing that they more react to greens and blues, I switched, but the reaction was the same. I think they might more react to the shape than the actual color. Because she actually okay. uses different shape targets okay. for different kind of cues. So I think it may be more just mm -hmm. what they get used to seeing. So I think it may be the shape of my little yeah. my little cat food can. Are, are you screwed into a wooden doll? Are you going to – Go Do you have food out for the one in shed yeah. too or no? Uh, let's see. He, he might be a little uh, – well, he's, 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 he's doing his little excitement. So he's, he's not gonna move that much because he's. There you go. Come on. There you go. But but there I mean, go. still his reaction mm -hmm. versus. Yeah. So that animal didn't budge when Duran had his fist right up in its face, and as soon as the target was there, the the snake reacted, was scenting it. Uh, it wasn't a big reaction, but it was definitely drastic compared to when he just had his hand in there, and so. I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but just to be able to open your retics enclosure and just put your hand in their face and them not bite you, to me, that's like, that that that's goals right there. And that's all of them. And even I have one that's in another room, and she's probably my most, uh, like, nervous. So she has, like, a food response where she'll come shooting up to the top of the tank. I'll put my hand there. She'll smell. She'll back off way back into her, you know, uh, hide. As soon as I bring out that target, she'll come all the way back up to the target without any fear. So they're pretty much Man, all like that. I, I'm, so far. I'm convinced. I'm going to, even though I my animals are older, I'm going to, especially with one of them in particular, I'm going to attempt to start doing this just to separate the feeding between me. I have an animal from Daniel Solis that, for whatever reason, I, I've talked about this in previous episodes, but I'll... I'll feed her, and if I'm by the room, if I step in the room while she's going through her feeding after I give her her food, she'll let go and make me refeed her over and over. So I wonder if even just that target training might retrain her to realize, like, what's happening. This human is not food. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm going to start with her. Yeah, no, I mean, I've... I've I've been sold on this concept because me and you have talked about this for about a year now, and you've showed me the progress that <clears throat> you've been making with them. And I've been sold. Um, and one thing that I've shared with you is like, um, I, I'm so excited to see you do this as they continue to get older. Because one thing that in the back of my mind is like, I I would love doing this. Like if I was as successful as you with doing it, there would still be something in the back of my mind that once my snake got to a size that could you know give a good blow on a strike i i don't know if i would like even if it was target trained great i don't know if i would want to take that risk myself but like where are you on that process if they continue to do this if you have an eight foot snake are you gonna <laughs> still trust that you can put your hand in front of its face and no i think I'll, I'll gradually continue to do it until i get to a point where i'm like okay this snake is really gonna hurt me because even my big beefy five foot boa when she caught me on my knee it wasn't that bad you know so and i tend to either you know 
give them a meaty part of my hand or not fingers so they can slice into it, you know. And that's the way I'll yeah. try to like move forward with it. And I'm, I'm sure eventually at some point I'll be like, okay, I have enough confidence that they're not going to bite me, but I'm not going to test it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's amazing work and I'm so glad that you're able to demonstrate that. I'm hoping that that comes very clear out in, in the, um, you know, when we post this video, um, cause I, I'm going to go back to what I was saying about a lot of old school keepers that just are, um, set in their ways and they are for, for good reasons. I mean, a lot of these old school keepers had wildcat imports and they've, they've been punched by, you know, a, a big snake and, and the idea of this concept of sticking your hand in a retix enclosure is, um, almost like just, it, it almost seems kind of idiotic. But again, I think it goes back down to these animals are way, way more intelligent and socially aware that they're, I think they're very, very capable of making a distinction between feed mode and human. Yeah. And right? then also any bites I've taken while I've been testing the limits of this, none of them are rat bites. They'll, they'll, they'll bite me and they'll realize right away and let go. You know, none of them, they don't bite and wrap me up at all. So that's also a difference. And, uh. Yeah, but as they get bigger, I don't want to take any lacerations or lose a tendon in my finger. So, yeah. So right now I'm pretty confident. No, I just, I, I got my seven and a half year old just bit me today. I have a, and it, and it had a very nice, um, well, a, a nice yeah. lash. It, it took like an yeah. hour to stop. It, it's, yeah, it's well, right same there. to you too, Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, it's never fun to get a bite from a snake that's not small, um, regardless of species. So, yeah, I definitely think that that's a, a good, um, I think that my my thought process lines up with yours in that sense is even if I built a lifelong trust with them in doing that, there becomes a certain size and age. Um, you know, when you start breeding, right, and you have females that go through their cycles and then you have males that are six and seven feet, um, that's probably one of those times of the years where I'm going to say, you know what, you're great at target training, but I'm just going to be really safe just in case. Like I said, mostly it's just to mitigate that food response. Like as long as I have them thinking yeah. rather than reacting, um, I hope that goes forward into those moments where the, the females are trying to pack on calories and like food, 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 you know, so I'm hoping it translates and I'll let you guys know. I like how you said think instead of react because these are thinking animals, but when these animals oftentimes are subjected to small enclosures, sit in the same spot day in, day out, go through the routines of just open feed, open takeout, clean, they stop that thinking process. And I think that, I think as they age, there's possibly, possibly they learn to actually shut down and not think as much. Um, because they're so used to the routine. And I think keeping them sharp with their cognitive skills is like, like that's a great way that you're doing that. Thanks. So any new uh, out-of-the-box stuff you guys are going to try with your animals? I think I'm, like I said, just going to start with that tiger girl and just see if it's able to mitigate some of that extra food response after she's already taken some prey um seeing her just eat right after taking prey will be a big uh win and then just seeing her less reactive will be great too 
Um, big things I'm going to try, you know, not, not currently. I mean, I'm, I'm going to keep everything pretty similar besides just, you know, I mean, at this point I, I try to put in a couple hours a day of just being with my animals so I can establish that bond between them target training or not my uh my one girl that's in the other room i actually have her on bioactive right now and uh that's something i'm testing out i know eric lee said he's gonna try to go move to a full bioactive garage and uh so it's interesting you know seeing what disappears quickly (laughs) like sheds go real quick with the isopods uh you definitely have to have a lot of springtails for like you want poop to go fast (laughs) Because they don't, the, the isopods tend to take the more flavorful stuff first. Um, so that, that's another interesting <laughs> thing I'm trying out. What do you guys feel about bioactive? I know you guys might be more breederish, so it needs, you know, annotation. Yeah, and all that kind of stuff is paramount. Ye- definitely. I mean, bioactive's something that's always interested me, and of course, it's the more appealing way to keep your animals. I think just keeping these animals for a handful of years and having some adults um really just my biggest concern is the pee um if the cleanup crew can really take care of the load that the retic drops then i think it'd be great um i just want to see how people are doing it how successful they are first i'm I'm not always that brave to be that <laughs> pioneer and jump jump right in to try new things out, but I, I do love seeing uh, people push the boundaries of what we think is possible with these animals. Side note with bioactive, Scott Severs, he's been keeping larger retics in bioactives and he's moving his whole collection. I think he'd be someone cool to have on on the episode to talk about that and his experience because that's, I think that's on everyone's mind is what does it look like with a large retic? Um, and, and what I mean by large, I mean, even we're just talking about, you know, eight feet or seven feet um, and what that looks like. But what, what I would like to see myself do, like I have, hopefully, I would like to say in two more seasons, two more years, what I would like to do is... Um, I want to have a holdback wall where I can make these not a, not perfect cubes, a little more rectangular, longer, but have like three feet long by, you know, two feet deep, 18 inches tall. And I'd like all of those like this is going to be like a holdback wall where until they need their permanent size, full, large enclosure, I would like to try to get all of those set up bioactive. So that I have minimal maintenance that I need to do for any holdbacks that are basically going to be two years and younger. And if I did that, I think that would right there save me a bunch of cleaning time, number one. And I think it'd be a really awesome way to get a lot of enrichment and young retics for a while. Um, I'm not I'm not against or opposed to a bioactive for large animals. I think we just need to find I, I need to find someone local that's doing it or just really talk to someone who is currently doing it to talk about the aspects of like what works, what doesn't work. Um, and, and I don't know, man, people that go bioactive end up becoming nerds on bugs. And I don't know if I want to get to that level. Um, it's crazy how much people like for a single bug, people are paying like 80 bucks 
And I'm like, you you realize that's a bug. You yeah, just get I, into it. <laughs> Duran mentioned that Eric Lee was going to try to start doing some more bioactive stuff. And I, I was a little confused earlier today when I saw Eric Lee post uh, a book on breeding beetles. But now it's all coming together. <laughs> it's, yep, yep. I loved his comment, too. He's like, since since I have some more time to kill. <laughs> Um, but no, I think it's super fascinating. Um, and I mean, it's just another area to educate yourself and to know about a different type of animal, how they work and how we can kind of make that work for retics. But, um, what I love about like kind of our generation and these people that are coming up on keeping retics, it seems like people keep pushing the envelope forward and we are, we're getting away from just doing what's worked since the late eighties and nineties. And we're, we're starting to push boundaries and, and push the envelope to try to find ways to really keep retics in a much more, um, in a lifestyle that's just really better suited for them, right? I don't think that retics should sit in the same corner day in and day out. I, I think a big difference between then and now, honestly, too, is just the way we look at these animals. I mean, they're not, we don't look at them as disposable as they were back then. Um, you know, people have a lot more respect for what they're keeping because of the education that's been put out there. And I think that goes a long way into people wanting to elevate their keeping standards and wanting to push the boundaries of how we keep these animals. Just, you know, after seeing the same thing for so long and not being totally satisfied with it, I, I think this is like the perfect time to start really pushing the envelope yeah yeah i think too it's also like you evolve or you disappear you know if people start caring about mm -hmm. where their animals are coming from and how they're kept like you know look at garrett you know he had all his stuff in tubs now he's you know trying to design cages and putting them all in larger in cages even though it added you know i asked rob i'm like how long does it take you to clean these now he's like before it took a cub you know a tub one minute now it takes 10 minutes for each of these cages you know what i mean <laughs> So Gary's got to pay for those yeah. man hours, you know, so. Yeah, no, I mean, and it's great that he's, I mean, again, this is a business guy that has to pay more hours for people to clean more. And he's doing that for his animals. And I think that that's great. Um, but I can relate to that. Like I have my cleaning days. I have like alternating cleaning days on one day. I clean the racks that I have. And on the next day, like I'll clean three enclosures in the time that it took me to clean 12 racks. If not, if not more racks, I could probably, I don't even have that many racks. I have like four, eight, and then like the really tiny ones are still in like grow up. But, but I have like 12 snakes out of the 20 in racks because they're just, they're not like a size to get into a big enclosure. And I can knock out those 12 in, in like an hour. And then it takes me like an hour to do three enclosures. Um, so um, but it's always a question that we have to reflect on ourselves is why did we first originally want to keep these animals, mm -hmm. right? It, it wasn't, it wasn't for us to be selfish. It was because we wanted to own these uh, awesome, intelligent, you know, great animals that I go into my garage every day and just, I, I feel blessed and just grateful to be in their presence. And so why are we going to keep them at a standard that is, you know, we're not taking advantage of that feeling that they give us, right? Yeah. No, I think that's beautifully said. I mean, seven years later, and I, I still walk into this room, and I'm amazed that 
they're here. I, I, I can't think of a, another python species or anything else that gets me as excited as when I look at a retic. So, yeah, I, I think how we see them is how we should treat them. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, and because Nathan, I know me and you in our enclosures, we keep pretty minimalistic. Um, and I would like to get to a place where I can find a happy medium between time efficiency, but also maximizing their enrichment. Yeah, I think that's my biggest hesitation with going away from the minimalistic kind of sterile environment that they're in now is like, you know, my plans with breeding uh, and the collection I hope to build, it just it, it takes a lot less time to be able to keep that way. It also gives me a lot more peace of mind knowing that as long as I stay on top of cleaning and water changes, all of that, that these animals are going to be healthy and thriving. So, yeah, I think that's that's the biggest reason I, I don't do any of that right now. If, if I ever become fortunate enough where I can do this full time and still keep it a small, manageable operation, um, I, I definitely plan to go all out and, and try every which way. Um, because I'm going to have a lot more time on my hands to be able to, you know, clean more, interact more, instead of me working 50 hours a week at my day job and then putting 20 hours a week at my snakes. Yeah, see, um, I kept it small. To answer you, to answer. Good answer. I was going to say to answer you. Well, actually, no. Um, no, I did answer your question. That was a, a, a I blanked out. You asked yeah. about if we thought about going bioactive. And, yeah, I, and just snake wall heavily that you're going to do. <laughs> but uh, yeah, since yeah. I have that smaller um, collection, ahead. you know, I have the whole and as much as enrichment as I can. But it is work to you know clean these things. I have to take everything out. I actually have you know still have coconut and cypress bedding, and uh, mm -hmm. so I haven't had a big snake yet that pees that much. So I don't know how that'll change as they grow. Um, but I also try to make it as easy as possible. So I have like a vinyl tray in the bottom that once I get everything out, I can lift the whole, you know, bedding thing out, dump it out, clean that off, clean the inside, put it back in. It makes it easy. Now, my question for you guys is you guys are both on paper and the pee seems to be the issue. And they, cause like with them in here, like they'll pee and poop, but they barely track it anywhere because the, the pee goes mm -hmm. down and is that the issue that the pee and poop mix and that's what they track all around your guys' enclosures? I don't have much issues with tracking. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, unless they're, the only time I've ever seen any kind of tracking is maybe when I come home from a, a vacation or something like that where I'm not, not able to clean right away. Uh, and maybe sometimes they'll, they'll have run back through uh, their poo or whatever, but no. But for the I most mean, part, when they really? when they poop or pee, they kind of get out of the way. Because mine, all of them, they like get... they have they have perches, hides, everything up high, and I, they never poop yeah. on anything up high. They always come down to the ground to poop. So yeah, I've never had to clean uh, <laughs> poo off a perch. I I have perches in all of my cages. I have shelving in two of my bigger enclosures, and never once um, have I cleaned any poo or pee off of those. Um, yeah, yeah, it's always yeah, down on the paper, and they always seem to move away. 
Um, I know you guys have seen some of the images I sent you in our group chat that we have of just like my Slayer female just having these massive <laughs> explosions. Um, that typically happens if I'm feeding, like if I feed her rabbits for like five, six times and then I give her a really big pig. Pigs, for some reason, if you go off course of just a pig diet, which I don't like to have just a set diet for any of them, and then and then you go back to a pig, normally that first one or two is just complete mess, but... What I love about the enclosure design from Jungle Cages that I, I worked with Mark at Jungle Cages to do is my per the 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 shelf that I have built in um, comes from the back all the way to the front and then cuts off in a diagonal all the way to the middle of the cage. So I have a um, my my Solaire is fourteen feet long and I have. Um, a a shelf that she fits on that shelf completely and if she were probably another two feet she could fit on there and so what's great is that if they make a mess on the bottom I normally find them on top if they pee on top I normally find them on the bottom so I think that's super important um, for any keeper to consider if you have them in an enclosure make sure that if they, they get larger and they're going to have a really really big mess that they have opportunity to escape from that mess if you can't clean it immediately one thing i want to add as well is even for my larger females um in their enclosures a lot of the time when i notice that they need to pee or anything like that they'll go to their large reservoir water dishes that i provide for them they can fit their entire body into them most of the time they're peeing in there That's the worst you know, I'll get a little pee it outside smells. of the, yeah, it, it's awful, but it's a lot better than, you know, flooding the enclosure. But most of the time, they prefer to use their water than they do pee on their their paper and then get away from it on the other side of the enclosure. If, if you guys are, are you know... I want you guys to comment below if you guys have snakes that have their set corner or water bowl <laughs> that they pee in. I think it's an I think it's an interesting concept because I have snakes that I like at least a dozen of my snakes have a corner, a designated corner where they pee and poop. Or I have another like handful of snakes that every single time in the water bowl. Um, I actually think that they're a lot neater than we think they are. Well, it sounds like well, someone needs to invest in one of those cat litter corner things <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> i think it's individuals though as well i mean i've noticed that maybe half of my collection absolutely just love soaking will spend days in their water while the other half you know they'll they'll drink they'll utilize their water but they don't soak near as much so i, I definitely think it's individual as well that's called utah yeah, syndrome yeah, yeah it might be <laughs> you know well, what? wait till <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say wait till Duran gets to Vegas. Yeah, we'll really know then. No kidding. Right now, I only have one that will ever go in her bowl and soak. And usually the humidity in there stays like sixty to seventy. I do want to see when I go. Well, I'm probably gonna miss and stuff a lot more when I get out there. But I do want to see if there's a difference where they're like, yeah, we need some water and we're getting a bit more. You know, I've talked with Lucas I, I, about this a little bit. Um, being in Utah, being in the desert state, I. Uh, my philosophy on, you know, misting is I don't always want these guys to be living in a completely damp environment. Like scale rot definitely runs through my mind and other issues that can arise with different bacteria. But 
I really only mist or soak when I notice they're going into a, a shed cycle. And I've had really good results that way. I mean, these guys will really kind of navigate their own humidity by just soaking here, which is really cool to see. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that – so when I kept them upstairs originally in my house – I didn't have a humidifier or anything. I kept them on when I was keeping them on paper. Um, you know, it, in most of the time in San Antonio, it would still like my room humidity would be 40%. And so when I saw them in blue, I would either like soak them right when they got out of blue before that shed, or I would just mist down. Um, but now that I have them in the garage and I'm running solely ambient and I have a humidifier and a dehumidifier, you walk into my garage and it, it's like you're walking into the Indonesian jungle. It's humid in there and I don't have a single animal in my collection that soaks. And I have big bulls. Nathan, go ahead and finish what you were saying because then I want to get into uh, a little more personal topic with Duran. Yeah, my computer was doing so well. I was so proud. Um, you know, one thing I just want to add on to what I was saying about you know how I I don't really provide a ton of extra moisture unless I notice they're in a shed cycle. Is Utah uh, our driest season is really during our winter. We get extremely dry out here, and so that that time of year I definitely make sure to run a humidifier and try to keep it around, you know, 40, 45 percent humidity just to make sure that they're not running into any shed issues. Yeah. And that's breeding season too, so. I mean, I definitely don't want to run into any issues then. No, not at all. Um, that's where the, the my lay boxes, I put them in just in case, but like I, I spray those heavily when I put them in, and um, it, it's being used by my Kaiwati right now. So um, by the time that this airs, hopefully I'll have a clutch. But um. Yeah, I, I, you know, Richard Bilbo, he was one of my big mentors, and he was really the person that got me into Super Dwarfs before I even knew Garrett and anyone else in he's this he's a legend in this i want to have yeah. him on shout out to he, sir bilbo he's he's seriously one of the greatest people you'll ever meet in this industry and sir just bilbo. <laughs> how he treats his animals and if you ever get the chance to stop by his collection you you'll know right away that you know he just he treats these animals more like family than any of us and they, they are literally his kids I, I would love to talk to him and i've been meaning to talk to him more about some of his humid hides that he's been keeping in, especially uh, since he's here in the state of Utah and he's been keeping and breeding so successfully for years. So, I mean, the humid hide thing is high on my list to add in for, you know, enrichment, a little bit of uh, variety inside my enclosures while still keeping it somewhat sterile. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I like that idea. I have uh, m all of my enclosures that I have, my jungle cages, they're large enough for all of my snakes to where I could literally put a, a 30 quart big tub of just moss and repti chip in there and spray it down if they want to just sit in there. And that's actually a really good point that I might, I don't have issues with humidity, but just in case they want it, um, I think that that would be cool. Um, so. If it's okay with you guys, I want to just ditch the snake talk for a second, even though this is the retic lounge. Um, Duran, I found out just, I've known you for two and a half years, and I found out this week about what you do for a living. And I feel like we're not giving our listeners justice if you don't share this badass work that you do. Um, 
<clears throat> I'm a graphic designer. I uh, work in the entertainment industry. I do television marketing. So I do a lot of like key art posters for uh, TV shows for Sony. And basically, I between making key art posters and I do sales presentations for them to sell these shows internationally because we distribute all over the world. So do you are you employed by Sony or is it a third party that contracts with Sony? No, I'm, I'm employed by Sony. Can you are you allowed to share like some of the recent projects you've been working on? Actually, I can't. <laughs> a lot of this for the new shows okay. coming no, up in the fall. I thought, but yeah, um, I mean, I have worked on a lot of shows. What? What? Like Breaking Bad, uh, Better Call Saul. Recently, I just finished them. Um, you know, like Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy. Shows, I don't. I don't. Uh, Goldberg, The Good Doctor. Uh, Oh my gosh, I'm 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 a film, I'm a film mm-hmm. nerd, and I I I hate when people are like, oh, Breaking Bad's a good show. People don't realize just how phenomenal of a show, directed, produced, acting that show really is. Um, what did you do? Yeah, for that? It's a good show. Um, actually, one funny story is uh, you know, like a rap party, I ended up meeting uh, Walter White, and I, you know. The actor I went up to him and I was like, "Hey, what's going on, man? Like, I retouch a lot of your photos." He's like, "What are you talking about? I don't need retouching." I was like, oh, "No, I didn't mean to." And he's like, "No, nah, I just messed with you, <laughs> you know." So, uh, it's pretty cool, but uh, yeah, like I said, all of that is just doing the artwork and marketing stuff, you know, the either outdoor or uh, events, and then a lot of like sales decks for them to go around to sell the show to other. Like they had a Mexico version of, you know, Breaking Bad. So nice. Yeah, I knew, I knew nice. you had been working with Sony for a little while now, and mm-hmm. I, I don't think it really like hit home how how like involved you were until you shared mm-hmm. some of those pictures with some of the Better Call Saul guys, and mm-hmm. it, it's just it's really cool what you're doing. Yeah. And and you yeah. do a little bit of like expo work for them, right? Like uh, display front kind of things. Uh, yeah, dude, there's a couple shows that we do. We used to do it a lot more, but stuff that's overseas usually. So a lot of my stuff ends up overseas. Okay. Nice. Um, all right. One last thing that I want to talk on and touch on before we um, end this awesome episode is um, I, I want to hear your thoughts. We've talked a lot in detail. Feel free to share them. Feel free to, to keep them to yourself if that's what you want to do but i want to know like where you want to see the retake industry going what are some things that you would like to see in the super dwarf dwarf community happen um what is it that we need i, I want to know your feedback on that because you've been sitting on beautiful animals you're growing slowly and you you're an extremely intelligent person and you see things from a perspective of like there's systems that we can implement. Um, we've had these conversations. So if you want, feel free to, to share some of that info and just like, what would you like to see the retake industry in general or just in the Superdorf Dorf community kind of evolve and get to? We might need a part two for all the stuff that I'm trying to come up with in my head that <laughs> I don't know how to implement. No, that's okay. We, uh, we, we got time, man. Yeah. Content. Content is king, and I think this has been a great interview. Uh, my first come in you know, not knowing anything about percentages and super doors. And I was like, and then talking to Gary, like, oh yeah, it's just a marketing term. I was like, okay, so if I can get a 50% super dwarf that is really small and really big at the same time, what sense do the percentages make? 
So I'm like, there's got to be a way to fix this, you know? So as I'm talking to Garrett about stuff, he's like, oh, there's way too many egos to do what you're trying to do. And I'm like, and also it's a bit of naivety and not knowing maybe that helps me. And at the age I'm at, I, you know, I also have a curious mind, so I'm not afraid to ask what I want to ask or sound stupid at this point. I just want to learn. So I'm like, okay, explain to me why this won't work. Okay. Like, so my one idea is to certify bloodlines and like, I've talked to a couple of people, like, they also kind of tell me why it wouldn't work or how hard it would be. But everyone told me that snakes have to be at least, you know, five to seven years where you kind of hit that age where they slow down their growth and they're closer to what they're going to be. So I was like, okay, so at seven years, let's get that size. You take that clutch, raise that up to seven years, and then the third clutch to seven years. And then you kind of get that average size that you're getting from these animals. And then saying this bloodline is this size. You know, most of the animals from this bloodline will end up around this size. And you can certify bloodlines that way in a way. You know, so I wanted to come up with, you know, a star system. So if it gets smaller, you can add more stars. So one star would be dwarf. Two star would be in between, you know, dwarf and super dwarf. Three star would be super dwarf size, you know, and four, you know, if you keep it small, you keep adding more stars to whatever. So the smaller they get. And that would be kind of like, and it takes, you know, seven years of documented sizes from these clutches to get your animals certified at that size. So that's like the general, I guess, basis of the idea. And, I, you know, I would like someone who has more knowledge to come in and say, okay, we can try to refine this like this. This might work. This might not work. Or this is why it won't work. You know, I talked to certain guys like Rodney who says like sizes are polygenic and, you know, it's just luck of the draw how big a snake is going to be once you you know put that mainland blood into it you know you can get a very small snake you get a very big snake it's just how the genes line up you know you talk to some other guys garrett eric and over experience and time they've seen that the female size tends to you know lend more to how big or small a snake is going to be so no one's really proven anything you know so i'm just throwing out ideas seeing if they stick or if anybody you know can jump on but it would take a lot of collaboration from people to get it to work you know and that's that's what i find i think hardest thing it, it's going to take a lot I, of I consistency as well with breeders uh if we want to move this route i i think you know having these bloodlines over five to seven years be proven out over clutch after clutch i mean it's gonna it's gonna take these breeders reproducing the same animals so mm. we can really know what's what's happening within these bloodlines yeah and some people aren't doing the same breedings every year so yeah might throw it off no but but at least to the theory that female holds you know females king in terms of that size you can use that female with different males and i mean that if yeah. that theory is correct i have my own thoughts on that and we can again this could be a whole different episode in which, you know, uh, uh, you know, because in rep reptiles are obviously different than mammals, but like it would be absurd to think that like the woman's size in humans is going to dictate the size of the human that she gives birth to long run, you know, when she's five, eight, but the dad is six, four and you end up with a six, three human. Right. But, um, but with snakes, it's a little bit different and their biology is different. So I, I don't dismiss that theory at all. Um, but, but I want want you guys listening comment below if you think that a star rating would be good to do 
or to, to if you guys have other ideas on how we can try to implement a system where if you guys are buying a snake, there's a ranking system in terms of like a star rated, like you're getting a three star or a four star or hell, if you have the money to cash out for a five star, right? Um, you can get a, a really small animal. Um, I think the biggest barrier to that, like you said, is collaboration. Because if you know the history of the Rita community, collaboration is something that is just now starting to like happen a little bit more. Um, but even then, collaborating with one another, egos, things get in the way. Um, you know, some people have ulterior motives and pushing sales and they're going to say whatever they need to say in order to just make a sale. They're going to be like, I don't care about a star system. I just, I, I just need to make 125 K a year in order to feed myself and feed my animals. Um, but I, I would love to have a system set up like that. Um, or at least, um, at least a way to track lineages, right? At least to have a concrete place that we can all go to, to know, um, historically through generations and generations, what size these offsprings came from this animal and this animal. Um, the retake industry is so behind on tracking any type of lineage. You look at the green tree python community and, you know, they, <laughs> although their names are crazy, they're like, oh, this is hatchling SR5124687. And they're like, oh, that's a sick, that came from this and that. And like, they literally have a, a, tree a family tree a diagram where you can trace back to the 90s like still today you can literally find grandparents great-grandparents great-great-grandparents in green tree python world and here in the retic industry we're like uh i don't know who produced what i don't know what import came from where someone says it came from here two other people say it came from there um so we have a lot of work to catch up on but i think that that's a phenomenal idea a lot to work a lot of work to catch up on and as well i think we're also fighting the standard that has just been kind of put in place over the last 5 years 6 years yeah. whatever so you know it's it's going to take a little bit of reshaping how people think about these bloodlines but i think it's definitely doable and i think there's some kind of yeah. middle ground where we all can reach and try to represent the size of what these animals are going to reach to a better yeah uh, a better degree i don't know maybe in like 10 15 years when duran's 90 years old we'll be able to see a a good <laughs> side of as eric lee said it's <laughs> you, just not you, you 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 call yourself an old man i had to yeah. i had to take a stab at that but no i think i think realistically if we can find some type of page and work together i think that in the next 10 15 years i think the rita community is going to really really take off yeah uh if you want to hear one of my other ones that i recently came up with <laughs> um let, let's get a, a a snapshot of them Okay, uh, one is shed rates and how that equates to how large a snake's going to get. So if I feed the same clutch, same exact prey items each time, you know, the whole clutch, they will have different shed rates based on their metabolism. You know, there's other factors that involve, but if I take a mainland hatchling and a superdorf hatchling and I feed them the same rat pup every week, 
the, the mainland's metabolism is going to slow down. They're not going to shed as often because they're not getting enough food for their metabolism. You know, you know what I mean? So the, the super dwarf is going to shed, you know, every 40 days. The mainland is eventually going to be shedding like every 60, 70, 80 days. So can that translate into, you know, crosses where the clutch, if they're polygenic, then some genes should have a faster metabolism than the smaller genes, right? So if you feed them the same thing, some of those shed rates of the snakes that have a, you know, more mainland metabolism will slow down. So I don't know if that's true or not, because I don't have that many snakes. So it's hard for me to try. Uh, hold on, I'm getting a call right now. There we go. Okay. So that's one of my ideas. Uh, now, recently. Hold on. Hold, hold, hold on. Hold on. Shed cycles. You've talked about this a little bit more in detail in the text. I, I feel like. So you summarized it real quick and great, but I think there's a lot of value to what you were talking about over our group chat. So share a little bit more on that if you're okay with it. Yeah, which aspect of you are you talking about? You can refresh me and I'll fill it in. I wrote a whole bunch. <laughs> so. you, 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 you were, I, I just want you to go in on your observations. You were talking about like 40-day shed cycles. Okay, yeah. Okay, so the way I've been feeding mine, uh, all these animals here, they've, been on pretty much similar schedules at their ages. So basically the standard of, you know, one and a half times whatever their body, you know, middle of their body is in diameter. So they've been all fed that way. And what ended up happening, like I have a 43, the, the albino girl, she's 43 and a half percent superdwarf. I have the anery, she's 75% superdwarf. And they've actually kept almost the same pace. So I don't know if she's from a small bloodline or, you know, or, you know, or this is a larger bloodline of 75% girl. And, but they both ended up on 40 day cycles. All my animals actually are at 40 day cycles. The last snake I got, she came in a little big at the same age. I was like, wow, she's way bigger than the first two and way bigger than the pygmy. And I was like, okay, Rob tends to like feed a lot as we all know. And I was like, okay, maybe she's being overfed. <laughs> so I kind of fed her like I would one of these guys at the same age when they came in and her shed cycle was like at 60 days. I was like, wow, that's great. You know, I figure if she's truly that size, her food should respond, you know, and, and, you know, she's, she'll be shedding normally like these guys, but her metabolism was just different. And it took 60 days for her to, you know, shed between meals, you know, as differently from what these guys. So I was like, okay, let me just do the standard with her. I upped her prey size to one and a half size and then boom, got back to 40 day shed cycles on her. So her metabolism definitely needs that yeah. bigger size. So she may end up, my 68.75 may end up being my biggest girl eventually. So I don't know if that correlates, but that's what I found. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I, I was on my phone and I, I pulled up, I don't know if you can see this, but all the black and gray right there, that's Duran's theory written out. Um, so I'm going to, I, I want to read some pieces from here because I thought that this theory was super, super interesting. And I think that, that people um, need to hear about it, but let me summarize everything that you basically just said in this little like blimp that you tape that, that you typed here. You basically said you tailored the feed schedule to the healthy shed rate for that animal's metabolism. And so ideally, instead of wondering if we are overfeeding or underfeeding based on frequency and meal size, you want to, you, you have this idea that it might be based off of shed rate. And if we could somehow work together to find 
the consistent shed rate that equals a lean animal, a healthy animal, and achieves the 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 what we think is the right size based off percentages that it goes off of shed rate, right? Yeah. I actually talked to some people who so, overfed their animals and they said the shed rate is like between 15 and 30 days if you're doing power feeding. So I was like, okay, so there we have like kind of a yeah. baseline of what overfeeding is. And then, you know, I don't know who underfeeds or, you know, tries to keep their animals small. And if they end up with that over 60 day shed rate, then you're probably underfeeding. Yeah. And so basically, um, again, I'm just going to go off of here what you said, but you said you've, you consistently, said you've consistently fed, fed your, your, your prey. prey. Oh, hold on. Oh, I hold on. Some... I hear some background, background noise. noise. That might be me. Hold on. Yeah, hold on. That might be me. Give me a second. Is it gone? Yep. Yep. Yeah, I, I had think, to switch. I think... my, my ear pods were done. No, so. Duran's about to cut out. Nathan cut out. So. I don't know if both of them are going to drop out or come back in. Oh, now it's just me. What's going on, everyone? Man, such a good discussion that we were talking about. Um, okay. So let me – while, while Duran just dropped off because his headphones died. So let me just talk about a little bit about what Duran was saying. Um, he was talking about consistently feeding his prey slightly larger than the diameter of their body, and it has led to 40-day shed cycles. Um, this also includes feeding once a week up to a year and 10 to 14-day cycles after a year. What is happening? Are freestyle on this Duran, can you one second okay that was Duran's mic I just had to mute you you're fired Duran I am so keeping that in the episode that was great <laughs> Duran so what happened was was now that your headphones died we didn't put echo cancellation on so now there's a big echo coming back in the background let me try to unmute you to see if that, if that worked and but oh no (laughs) this is great okay all right we're back after a little bit of technical difficulties um i almost wanted to freestyle on that beat for a little bit that was fun but duran while you were in and out it was a beat i was kind of talking yeah there was you didn't you didn't hear it it at all Oh, I can't wait for you to watch this episode. It's gonna be great. It was like and but and but and but and but. I came back and I saw and you I doing this. Like, I'm like, mm, what the hell's going mm, on? Mm. <laughs> yeah, no, I was I was jamming to that. It was it was a nice beat. Um, okay, so um, I, I was basically summarizing, read a little bit from your message about just kind of the end goal of this idea would be to determine a healthy growth rate based off of sheds and not so much food size or prey item. Yeah, it, it's almost like a combo thing. One, trying to figure out if shed rate is attached to the growth, and then also 
finding a healthy way to tell people to feed their retics because I heard everyone complaining about, oh, you're underfeeding your retics to keep them small. So if we can find a shed rate that is, I guess, average for the animal, you know, no matter what size they are, if they're, you know, and then also like I was talking to Eric Lee who had older animals than me, you know, it's, it might go up to like more, you know, of a couple months, you know, between sheds when you hit up for a healthy animal at that larger size where they're small like this 40 days and you know other way like three months or whatever you know so it's a matter of finding out what's the healthy shed yeah. rate so since you did that duran i have been documenting religiously on shed cycles and things like that so give me six months and i'll i'm going to get back to you with some data and see what i find nice. um and I don't know if it's going to work any differently with like the localities I keep. So one thing that I was told by um, Rodney, who's kind of pioneered the whole turnate in Halmahera, um, is that you won't get them to grow unless you feed them massive meals. And I cannot tell you that he was spot on with that because my female's three and a half years old and she had a growth spurt when I started feeding her. He's like, I was like, dude, like she's, at the time that she was three, I talked to him and I was like, she's like, you told me, uh, based off of his experiences, he's been able to get some of the F ones to breed at around three and a half years old and at about like eight to nine feet. And I was like, my female's three feet and she's like six and a half, seven feet. And he's like, he's like, you will not get turnates to grow unless you feed them massive meals. And so what I noticed was that she was shedding more frequently, but she was finally growing and she hit a really, really big growth spurt for like a six month period that I had never seen before in her. And so I found that very interesting because with my other localities I keep, that's not really a thing. But with my turnates, I did realize like, crap, maybe. And I was still feeding that left a good size bump. It's not like I was feeding and there wasn't anything visible, but I'm talking about like, I'm feeding this female. I just made a video of her the other night, but she's like, I don't know, maybe like two inches round. And um, I'm feeding her like three pound rabbits. She literally is like this big after her meal. And that worked on getting her to grow. Um, and so now I want to see if like me feeding these big prey items to turnates still equate to 30 to 40 day shed cycles versus, you know, the standard size meal that we would feed our Kalatoas, Kaiwati, whatever. Yeah, it's interesting. So I'm, I'm super interested. I thought you brought a very, very interesting point that I don't think I've ever heard from anybody is that we're, we're not paying attention enough to shed cycles when it comes to growth. Yeah, I mean, it, it's weird that no one really paid because everyone has to pay attention to shed cycles when they about to lay. So I figured everyone paid attention to it. Yeah, know? because money's involved. <laughs> Yes, I thought. <laughs> that's because they're like, oh, in 35 days, I'll get I'll get yeah, eggs. So I, I kind of thought everybody was keeping track of it. I'm like, okay, maybe not. <laughs> I mean, for me, historically, with when I was in Nathan, you can let me know, but I, I started keeping track of shed cycles for females once they start to slow down in their food drive, um, and when when it's about the time of the year when temperatures start dropping, and I'm thinking they're going to cycle is when I really start to get on point with it. Um, but that's only because I want to make sure I'm not missing like a pre-ovulation and an ovulation shed and so forth. But now I'm, I'm I have an entire uh, notes document on my phone where I'm I'm tracking feeding, shedding, uh, weird behaviors, all that stuff. You know, I I became obsessive over it when uh, I started breeding for sure. Um, but 
ever since Duran has mentioned that uh, shed cycle thing, I've been uh, a big part of it too. Is just I I was taking paper notes for the longest time. I had a binder with each animal and just taking paper notes. So uh, just not the best system. Um, and even notes on my phone like you're doing, Lucas, I, I would slack on that. Um, one thing that I've found that's helped me track those shed cycles is uh, the Snake Keeper app. I'm sure there's other apps mm. out there that uh, do the same basic things. Uh, this is just the most user-friendly that I've found. Yeah, I um, use Snake Keeper. This is not a paid yeah. sponsorship, <laughs> by the way. No, no, not at all. It's not a paid <laughs> ad, like, or it's not a paid app. Uh, I mean, if the Snake Keeper is watching, I got some changes I want to throw in there, too, because they need to add more prey items. So I'm sitting there typing <laughs> oh, is, in is small. That... I'm typing in words. I mean, they should have that. I, I, I got to put chickens for quail. Like, come on now. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I have to ask, because I, I have no idea. Do you know if the Snake Keeper, it's not the Snake No, no, it's not the Snake Keeper. No, no, app, not the snake keeper. I'm not sure. Keep, yeah, it's not Yeah, TSK, yeah, no, no, it's right. not TSK. <laughs> I, I think they, yeah, I, as I, long I as they've been doing so. this, I think they would have more variety of prey in here. <laughs> well, and I've been up to their warehouse a, a few times just to get shipping supplies since they're local here, and they don't seem like they're entering the app space anytime soon. It seems like they have their business and they, they run it how they've been running it. Duran, you had one recent idea. Oh, my recent idea. That you said you wanted to share. Uh, yeah, there's a little bit of controversy of certain standards people have in their own collections of what they, you know, would consider a pure locality. So my idea was getting a group of experienced breeders, you know, who've done this for years and getting all together and find out what their standards for a locality is. And if they can come together and come up and say, Hey, let's all agree on what a standard of locality is. And then people, breeders can come and say, Hey, here's my animal. Here's what paperwork I have, you know, that panel or, or a board, you know, if you will, we'll take a look at it. It'll be totally transparent. They'd be like, Hey, we track this animal to this, you know, importer, this thing. And then I don't know how many people will be on the board, but they kind of say, yeah, I agree that this is this locality. I don't agree to this locality for this reason. I don't, you know, and you can go and take your animals and they'll get certified by this board. And it's totally voluntary. You want to have your, you know, animal certified or not. And that will kind of give customers a little more confidence when they're buying from you with that animal, because these other breeders who've been doing this for years are kind of like chimed in on your animal. And it becomes a standard that everyone can hold, you know, so everyone doesn't have their own set of rules for what is a locality. Yeah. Because right now we're going based off of reputation, how nice people look and seem. <laughs> and uh, the, the, and if you have a decent amount of paperwork or information, you know, what, one thing that I've noticed is that people say like, there's no such thing as paperwork. And one thing that I, I and I, I thought that that was true. And then one thing I became aware of is someone sent me pictures of paperwork of the receipts from the export and import exchange of the animals that were being brought in. And so there's at least receipts from the exchange. Um, Nathan, what's your cat think about this? 
Uh, he's he's trying to I input I it any any chance he gets, but <laughs> uh, I don't think he has much to add. So keep going. Um, but um, so yeah, I I like that idea. My issue that I find is that. I feel like in today's industry, people tend to find favorites, and I feel like um, that might happen in this board, in which if there's a person who's friendly and who's nice and and can give you the information, and then it goes through this board of panel, they might give some people the benefit of the doubt. Um, and who are we going to put on the board, right? Because there's a bunch of people who have the reputation of being able to be on this board, but then at the same time, are those people able to get along? Will they see eye to eye? Um, really? And um, Really, the only thing they have to get along with is in beginning in agreeing on what the standards are. Then after that, everyone kind of, you do your own, I mean, if, if they all get along, you could do the research together. You could do it separately, but it has to be transparent. You say, hey, I tracked down the snake to this, this, and this, and this is why I disagree with this being that locality. So you have to give a reason. And over time, you'll see if, if, if they're given bullshit reasons, you're going to see it. You're like, okay, this time you said this one was okay, but this one's not because, you know, and it's the same, you know, issue. You know what I mean? So if it's transparent of why they're saying, yes, I do believe it's this locality or not, I think over time, consistency will show out as far as like, you know, so you won't be able to have favorites. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that, I mean, I like the idea. I, I don't necessarily think that I like the idea of a lot of people having a lot of power in the industry because it sounds like our U.S. government. Um, no, but it's but totally voluntary. I will say that. You don't have to do it. No. Yeah, no, no, exactly. But but then, it, I, I mean, what about the precedent that like, oh, this person didn't do it, so I'm not going to buy from them, right? Yeah, I mean, well, that's kind of where you so, now. <laughs> people go to the biggest breed. What, what, yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. They go to the biggest breeder or they go to people who by reputation and is known for, you know, whatever the case may be. But because, um, yeah, one thing that is like hard to do, like, for example, my wild caught female, I was able to actually go back and talk to Eric Keister at Fascination Herps um, about the information, send pictures, verified the animal, was able to get all the information that I need that met some of the people's other standards in the industry. And I felt confident on the purchase that I made. Um, but. I asked him like three too many questions because I was being thorough and he blocked me. Um, another good example is Bushmaster. Uh, so, so I guess what I'm saying with that is that Eric Keister, our fascination herps is unless you're a very big wig in the community, you're not going to get a hold of him. And same thing with Bushmaster. Bushmaster is not communicating with people. Um, I've been trying to help out a buddy of mine in the retail community that bought a, um, a Kalatoa that, um, second hand so uh someone bought a kalatoa uh directly from bushmaster imported in 2013 and this my, my buddy bought it directly from that person so it's only crossed two people's hands and they asked me like hey did bushmaster import and i said absolutely bushmaster was responsible for many of the imports that we have but um Man, I'm drawing a blank here. Maybe it's Cameron. I think Cameron's yes, the name of Cam. Bushmaster, the guy who runs it. Yeah, Cam. So so um, good luck getting a hold of Cam, right? So like how far back can we go? And at the end of the day, it's going to go based off of the trust you have with the individual who last had contact with this person. And that's why that's where the board has that clout and reputation that these guys may pick up the phone and answer the call. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, I, I think that it's an idea that is brand new. Um, you just came up with like this a um, yesterday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, yesterday. Which, which this is going to air probably a month from today, and right now it's August nineteenth. So he he came up with this idea August eighteenth. So um, for a preliminary idea, I don't think it's a terrible idea. Nathan, what are your thoughts about having like a, a board of trustees? <laughs> I think it's great. I think the biggest hurdle to jump over is just putting the egos aside, um, yep. especially with the history. What uh, egos? There's no egos in retail keeping. I mean, just even within the last five, six years, how this this game has changed within the SD community. I I think that yeah, there's there's going to be a lot of egos that have to just be checked and really just come together for the animals instead of trying to build businesses and all that i mean really what we're tr we're all trying to do in the end of the day is provide a little bit of transparency to the people that end up you know wanting to buy any of our animals like i want to i want to be able to tell you that the snake is going to stay relatively small when i sell you the snake but you know there needs to be some kind of standard set to where we know what these bloodlines are going to do how how the things are going to react you know it's just yeah, I, I think I think there's a lot of ego there, and that the more we just come together and put that shit aside, we're gonna be able to set better standards for the the newer keepers coming into it. No, yeah. wait, let these guys go to bed. <laughs> Good night, cuties. Um, and uh, see, I, I kind of consider myself a curious disruptor. I guess that's what the way I'm coming into this, and. Me too. The interesting thing is, um, like Garrett's Retic Fest, all the new people coming into this, we're all becoming a community together. And at some point when those older people are older and, you know, I may be with them, but the younger crew who all know each other may collaborate on something like this, you know? No, I, I, it's already in the works. We're we're gonna have a guest on in the future, um, Adler. Um, he he, me and him have been working really closely on trying to come up with a good tracking system. Um, a lot of the young people are using technology as a means to to make the community better, and there's ways that people are already. Um, those of us that are new in the industry, um, Duran, I know that you're like 80, but um, you know you're still newer yeah, to keeping retics. Um, and so I think all of us that are newer to keeping retics are really trying to find the next way to um, make the, just to make us a little bit more legitimate because there's other communities out there. Like I mentioned, the Green Tree Python community that has been doing this since day one. And um, we're, we're trying to, to set a new standard and set the bar for keeping. Yeah, definitely agree. Be nice. So, on that note, fellas, I think that we have um, had a, a phenomenal time tonight, and this has been great. Um, Duran, I don't know where your image went, I if you're still that. there. Are yeah, you there I'm with still us? Here. Can you hear me? Uh, okay. Yep. Oh, I don't. Okay, cool. So with that being said, Duran, thank you so, so much um, for, for coming on tonight. I I can speak for myself, but I think Nathan agrees. I think that tonight was awesome. I had a blast. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Great time. I can't hear him. Oh, 
Uh, no, I don't hear him either. Oh, Damn it! No. I was trying to give. I was trying to pass a baton to Nathan oh, to end the episode, but he, he just, ended the episode. <laughs> he just signed up. He. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks so much for listening on this interview yeah, with the right. myth. My oh, okay. I'll give it. I'll, I'll give it to him. Hold on. Yeah, my computer shouldn't shit out for the last five seconds that I need to talk. So, you know. Okay. Um, Duran. You know, I just want to thank you for coming on, sharing everything, showing us, you know, the progress you've made with your animals. Um, I'm extremely grateful to have gotten to meet you last month. Uh, a lot of people don't know I'm a barber. Appreciate the haircut. Chop all your COVID <laughs> hair off. Yep. Make him a, a brand new man. But yeah, I, I'm just extremely grateful for you coming on tonight. The The connections we're all creating throughout this community and just building this thing into something a little bit better than it is now. Yeah. If you guys want to join the Retic Lounge community, go ahead and we'll post a link to our Patreon below for you guys to sign up. Um, we have had a great turnout so far. Um, there's a Discord available. Uh, we do um, bi-monthly, so two times a month, um, Zoom meetings that we are engaging you guys in, which you guys get to ask questions, and we just have talks about, um, you know, retics in general, and get to have some fun conversation and Q&A stuff. Um, if you guys want to continue listening and supporting the Retic Lounge, we have our episodes every Friday that are dropping on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcast, um, and... Don't forget to support, donate to USARC when you can. Um, I know that we just had a big win over the legislation and the Lacey Act amendments being removed from the Competes Act, but I do not want us to get complacent, guys. You have to understand that until the retics are taken off of the Lacey Act, which that is not likely to happen. We can try, but it's not likely to happen these type of fights for our rights to keep retics and keep ferrets, keep fish, keep all that stuff is going to be in jeopardy every three to four years. Whenever there's an admin change in, in the Oval Office, this stuff is always threatening us. So do not get complacent. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel. Donate when you can and uh, support USARC because uh, they, they do have our backs when it comes to keeping these animals. Anything else you guys want to say before we head out? Uh, I guess the one thing I'd like to add is, uh, for me, like, social media has been interesting. I never had social media before I had reptiles. I really didn't do it. So I've been getting into it over the past couple of years. I would just want people, like, before they post stuff or do stuff, like, just ask, how is this going to better the community? And that should be everyone's focus. Uh, I don't want to get too specific, but I think after this last week, I think that's huge. So I, I appreciate that, Jerron. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and that's what's awesome about the Retic Lounge is we're here to be a, a supportive community for one another, grow together, uh, and create a positive atmosphere. Um, be be positive when you guys are posting your animals, and, and let's continue to grow and keep the industry amazing. Um Again, like, subscribe, comment on all platforms. We appreciate your support so much. Hope everyone enjoyed this episode. Have a good day, good night, or whatever time that you're listening to this. Y'all have a good one. Peace.